everybody. Welcome to today's One Million by One Million podcast. As you know, we have all kinds of interviews from the startup ecosystem, and today we are talking to Ira Weiss from Hyde Park Venture Partners. Ira, welcome to the show. It's great to be here. So tell us about Hyde Park. What is your investment focus? How big is the fund? What size investments do you like to make? Let's get to know you. Sure. So we are a um, we are a, a fund based out of Chicago and Indianapolis, and we focus on the mid continent, primarily the Midwest. Um, it includes geographies up to Toronto, which we include as part of the Midwest, um, and we made some investments in the, in Atlanta. Um, we primarily get involved in early stage companies, occasionally pre-launch up to about. Um, three, four million year in revenue, so primarily seed and Series A, um, and then we bo- we're more of a B two B investor than a B two C investor. Um, our we're, we're on our second fund. The first fund was a twenty five million dollar fund. The second fund is a sixty five million dollar fund, and we're called Hyde Park Venture Partners because the it's a fund that originally spun out of some work that we were doing at, I'm a professor at the University of Chicago Booth School of Business, mm-hmm. um, and there's an angel group called Hyde Park Angels that was started that I ran for a while, um, partially because there were some big successes that came out of the University of Chicago. One is Grubhub, and the other was Braintree, and so mm-hmm. um, we ran the angel group, then spun out of the angel group, and have now been running running Hyde Park Venture Partners. Got it. And... Um, if I may, I would like to double-click down on the stage um, that you said. You said you do seed and Series A. Help us understand how you define seed. And what are you in particular, what are you looking for in terms of the progression of a venture? What level of validation are you looking for? Are there metrics that you're looking for in terms of, you know, monthly revenue run rate, for example, in the event of a, in the case of a SaaS venture, which I imagine in B two B most of your ventures probably today are SaaS ventures, what uh, what are the specifics of how you are uh, looking at seed? So um, you know, I, and I did say seed in Series A, although you know because we're a Midwest focused fund, the the the, uh, the size of a Series A investment in the Midwest is is a bit smaller than the coast. And mm-hmm. I would say the bulk of our initial investments occur when a company is either at the seed stage or I guess there's a say, we we now call it also the post seed, which yeah. is a stage somewhere between seed and, and Series A. So the majority of our investments would start at that point. You know, it could be. I think occasionally we will make investments in companies that are even pre-launch, if we mm-hmm. really really like the entrepreneur and the entrepreneur has the the right kind of background to, to, to solve a pain point. I think ideally we get involved when a company is has launched and has some kind of engagement. You know, it could be, act, you know, some initial customers that are either in pilot or, you know, ideally some signed contracts, but usually somewhat post-initial um, initial, I wouldn't even call product market fit at that point, but at least initial evidence that someone's interested. Um, yeah. We kind of get involved anywhere between that point up to, you know, as I said, three million year in revenue. Really, our sweet spot would be companies doing, if it's a B two B SaaS company, it could be doing two hundred fifty thousand a year in revenue up to about 
one and a half to two million. That's probably okay. that is that is, the, that is our typical sweet spot. But yeah. again, you know, we've done stuff that's pre-revenue and and you know, occasionally occasionally larger than uh, larger than three million. Got it. All right. So, um, talk about your current portfolio. What have you invested in? How do you decide what to invest in? And if you if you pick out some examples from your current portfolio, help us think through how you analyze those ventures and what is it that's attracted you about those ventures? So, yeah, yeah so why don't I start with a few of our better-known investments, um, sure. and then I can dive into, you know, how we what, – what attracted to us to those early on. Um, one is a company that's called G2 Crowd, the letter G, the number two, and then Crowd, C-R-O-W-D. Um, and if you think of the way that people make software buying decisions, especially you know medium to bigger size companies, many people rely on Gartner, um, and many companies want to be rated number one on Gartner. Gartner is a public company worth you know I haven't checked today, but you you know worth probably eleven billion dollars, maybe more. Um, and you know, usually, if you're an early, if you're an earlier stage company or even a growth stage company, it takes a while to really get noticed by Gartner. And Gartner sure. lives in a in a little bit of a world that is a, a kind of a walled off garden. So our company, G2 Crowd, essentially, if you think if you go to buy a toaster, you can go online to Amazon and get 100 reviews. And if you want to go to a restaurant, you can get 150 reviews before you go to a restaurant. But when you go to buy a software system, you need to go to a Gartner report and read the, a report written by an analyst who, you know, may have fooled around with the software but is not an actual user. So G2 Crowd is the far and away leading site for software reviews. It has over 300,000 reviews, and these are all, you know, all over the last couple of years. Um, of all major software categories. And so the idea is people would go to that site and help make their buying, software buying decisions. Where the business model is, they, work, they do work with the software vendors um, to, market on, uh, to market via G2 Crowd. So that's one of our, one of our best known investments. So it's the same so model as Gartner, the software companies are paying a subscription fee to, the, to G2 Crowd to be included in this review process? So actually, it is free for the software companies, so you don't need to pay anything. Uh, but some some of the companies do choose to pay if they want to pay, um, and they can choose to pay if they want to have an enhanced presence on the site. There is an opportunity for someone who's interested in buying software to like click on and and actually um, you know be lead gen for the software provider. But that is the business model. You're right; is a model where. Um, at the end of the day, the vendors pay, but you, but anyone, even any upstart. I mean, I actually encourage people who have early stage software companies to use the site and have your customers go to the site because you, generally there's no better way to sell software than to have your customers sing your praise. And that was really the reason G2 Crowd was even started was the founders of G2 Crowd, the guy named Godard Abel and his team who had founded a company called Big Machines. They didn't like that when they were a small and medium-sized company, they felt their software was much better than the bigger players, but it was very hard for them to get noticed, particularly by Gartner. And they said, look, we really want our customers and the voice of our customers to be out there in the world. So that, so that, is, um, that is G2 Crowd. And they're, you know, companies doing really well. We were the seed investor. 
loved the founding team. The founding team had been there and done that, built a software company and sold it for $400 million to Oracle. And so that was a company that we did get involved post-launch, but pre, there was no revenue in the company at the time. Okay. And um, what else is interesting in your portfolio? This is actually, it's a, it's a good in, uh, company discussion, and, and what you described is interesting. I think the, the question I have still on my mind is how big is the TAM? And I'm going to ask you some questions about that in a moment, but let's sure. do a few more of your uh, highlights, and then we'll get, get to the TAM question. Sure. I mean, so I guess for G2 Crowd, um, you know, if you think about something like TAM, you know, certainly Gartner's worth $11 billion, and I think people spend, you know, over a trillion dollars on software, and so, you know, the, the overall market is large, so the assumption is the buying, you know, hopefully the buying decisions are, are a valuable piece of that. You know, a few, so we've made 66 investments overall across the two funds. The yeah. first fund was a $25 million fund, the second fund is a $65 million fund. Um, you, you know, a couple of other, high, I would say, higher profile investments, mostly because they've gotten, co you know, pretty big coastal funding rounds. One is a company called ShipBob, which is e-commerce fulfillment. It was actually started by two software designers, but it, but it is, a, is a service, and they actually physically do the, if you have an e-commerce site, your pain point as an e-commerce site is, you may be able to create a site in a matter of minutes on a website like Shopify or WooCommerce or Magento, Mm -hmm. But then your problem is how do you, especially if you gain traction, how do you physically ship and how do you physically fulfill? And so mm -hmm. ShipBob is really the only company out there that cost-effectively and efficiently fulfills for small and medium-sized e-commerce businesses. Okay. Um, they are doing, the company is doing remarkably well. Um, and part of their magic sauce is, if you are a small e-commerce site, you also tend to, in, you, you are selling via Amazon, you're selling via Etsy, you're selling via eBay and others, and really your life becomes pretty challenged when you're selling via multiple sites because you need to figure out how to manage your inventory and also integrate everything across those sites and then physically yep. fulfill and ship. And so ShipBob takes all of that off your hands and, and does it in a very cost-effective way because actually ShipBob has a distributed warehouse, warehouses that they actually manage. So one in Chicago, one in L.A., one in San Francisco, one in New York, now one in Dallas. And we will actually split your inventory the same way that Amazon will and actually fulfill for a small business around, around the country. Um, very and the cool. Tam, you know, the TAM, the TAM there is, I mean, look, it's – if you think about e-commerce, it's a large time, I think. Yeah, it's a huge. I mean, just the GMV of customers on, of of the clients of Shopify is like twenty five billion dollars, and yeah. at least ten percent of that is is shipping, and so the TAM is huge, and and obviously e-commerce is growing very quickly. So that's another example. Um, you know, I would say we do actually tend to do businesses invest in businesses that where we think the, being in the Midwest might have an advantage or being mm -hmm. on the non-coast might have an advantage. So logistics is a great example of that. Chicago and the Midwest historically have been, because they're in the center of the country, have a lot of very good logistics talent and a lot of the 
success stories um, on the logistics side. Even even the broker, entire shipping brokerage business were, was originally built out of Chicago. Um, so we have another investment that is doing really well called Four Kites, which is supply chain visibility software. It's used by yep. very very large companies, uh, mostly people who are who ship a lot. If you're Caterpillar or Walmart or Nestle or any big, you know, either brand or retailer or manufacturer, you do a lot of shipping. And um, Forkites provides visibility software for those groups. So Okay. And um, so let me ask you the TAM question. One of my observations is that we are in January 2018. Lots of stuff have already been built. And nowadays there aren't as many wide open opportunities to build these multi-billion dollar companies. There are some, obviously, but it's not, you know, it's not like every corner of the enterprise software market is full of billion-dollar opportunities. There are a lot of niche opportunities, great niche opportunities, and some of these have lower TAM, maybe $100 million TAM, $200 million TAM in some cases, even lower, $50, $75 million TAM. And some of these businesses need to be built for small amounts of capital, let's say $1 or $2 million, sold for $10, $15 million. in some cases built for 250 k to 500K, sell for $5, $10 million. And in, in some cases slightly bigger, maybe built for $5, $10 million, sold for, you know, 70 to $100 million. What is your perspective on these kinds of opportunities? Is this something you look at or is it something that you forego? What is, how do you think about these? I mean, I guess we are fortunate in that we have a fund size that does allow us to look at, um, you know, investments that are smaller TAM. Exactly. Uh, you exactly. know, I think, you know, 75 to $100 million TAM is actually even probably too small for us. Um, mm-hmm. But I think, you know, we're in a market where even, you know, 75 to $100 million TAM could be an – you could build an amazing business. Yeah. In a market that's a seventy-five to hundred million dollar TAM, I think you just need to make sure to do it cost effectively, um, in terms of not not taking in too much outside money. But there's, I mean, I think there's lots of those opportunities that are that are out there, um, and uh, and and you know, I, I like I see them all day long, and you know, we need to make decisions about how big the TAM needs to be, and and you know how attractive the market is but i think there's a lot of opportunity out there to, to build to build businesses even in those smaller markets so which markets but it's not a market that you go after what's your like you but however you're saying that you do go after some smaller term opportunities what what would be a, a, a reasonable cutoff what's the, what's the floor of your term requirements i mean i think probably for us you know it's probably 200 million um, okay. It would be the smallest TAM, but you know, but here's here would be my caveat about TAM. You know, sometimes the original TAM seems relatively small and smallish, whatever that may be. Let's say 100 million, but as long as it that sometimes that's just a beachhead into a into a larger market. As long as that's a beachhead into a larger market, like we're we're actually about to make an investment into a company. Where the TAM is really it, right now, the TAM is about 80 million. Um, but if it works and if they get traction in that market, there is a wider market that mm-hmm. I think they. There's no evidence yet that their product works in the wider market. But I think we, you know, we we believe in the entrepreneur and we believe that it's a product that can that can also address that wider market. So I don't yeah. I don't know if that's yeah. helpful. But the initial TAM, I mean, actually, my experience is there's some cases where 
your initial TAM can be quite small, and that may actually be a good way to start to get like a very, very dedicated group of users and, and people yeah. who are really, really, really... Well, in market share, you know, if you have a very big market, there are lots of competitors vying for that market share. In these small niche markets, often there are very few players, and, and you could have, you know, 70% market share of a relatively smaller marketing to build a very robust business. Yeah, no, I, and I, I agree completely. I agree completely. So how do you process the current investment climate where capital is moving further and further upstream? Where, how does a seed investor or an entrepreneur, for that matter, mitigate the Series A gap? Um, I mean, I guess our experience, I guess, has been maybe I would almost rename the Series A gap because for a while people were saying there was a Series B gap, but I think some of the funding rounds, you know, the seed rounds, particularly on the coast, seem to have gotten larger, and they're almost closer to what a, you know, not a full Series A, but closer to what a Series A would have been. Um, and I don't I guess our experience is the really good companies are able to get funding at Series A. If the traction is there and, you know, and, the, and or the team is there, in many cases, and the team is there, the best companies are able to get funding in that next round. And, and many of the larger funds, particularly if you're a multi-stage fund that invests in, in different stages, you want to be, be investing in the Series A because it's easier to get bigger ownership percentages early on. Yeah, but they can't, right? If you have a $2 billion, $3 million fund, you can't really go about putting in $1 or $2 million in, in a company. You just don't have the, the number of partners is limited, so they have limited oh. bandwidth. You just can't do it. Well, that I agree. They can't be investing at the seed stage, but the Series A, you know, I think the Series A. Yeah, I mean, as a result, the Series A has become larger, right? If if it's a four to six billion, I mean, a four to six million Series A, then yes, they can they can start at that point. But the point is also that to get to the requirements for a four to six million Series A right now are real metrics. You're talking about. Often you're talking about two million annual revenue run rate, and getting there is a lot of rounds of financing to get to that point in small dribs and drabs, basically. Yeah, I mean, I guess when I when I've looked at the data, it seems like that the you know there's a lot of Series A that are in the let's say eight to twelve million dollar range, more, more on the coast. You know, in the Midwest, we typically see you know, it could be a four or five million dollar round, maybe maybe four to seven million, occasionally eight million. But on the coast, it's eight to twelve million, and I think the um, you know the, a lot of the multi-stage fund there are there are there are a lot of early stage funds that do Series A and and all and always want to start with Series A, and then there are a bunch of multi-stage funds that also want to be able to invest in Series A whenever they can, because if they find something interesting enough, because they get larger ownership stakes. So I guess we have not, and I don't know, I'm not as close to the data on it, but. You know, we certainly find that it's, it's, it can be hard to get a Series A done and, you know, even harder to get a Series B done. But for the best companies, they're, they're, always, they're always able to get yeah, it done. Yeah, but best companies, I mean, it's, it's, you know, if you are, everything is working and everything is falling into place, that's a minuscule number of companies. There have been, you know, since 2013, there have been probably 50 to 70,000 uh, seed investments. And I, by seed, I mean the entire spectrum of pre-seed, seed, post-seed, pre-seed, post -seed, that whole spectrum. There were the, 
you know, 70,000 companies and growing, that's, that's a lot of companies. And, and the number of venture-funded companies still is very low. It's 1,200 to 1,500, and it remains more or less constant. So, um, so I think there is – and there are the other vector of data is that there are 500 to 700 um, micro-VCs of various sizes, your size yeah. and lower and, and slightly larger – so there is a lot of capital in this is slushing in this pool, but um, but I think it's still very difficult to navigate this pool for entrepreneurs. And, and one of the reasons I'm, you know, talking to all of you guys and, and trying to get some some sense of this process is to help the entrepreneurs gain clarity on how to navigate this. You know. Yeah. Yeah. No. Look, I think. Um you know, I think the, the the good news is there are a lot of seed stage funds, and there are a lot of, as you you were describing the numbers, there's a lot of investments that get done at the seed stage, and there, in some ways, are so many that then it does become that much harder to navigate to get the next round done. Um, and I think, you know, in terms of guidance to early stage entrepreneurs, if you can get, you know, the thing about a lot of seed stage funds, and that sometimes includes us, there's some investments where people may just put, you know, 100,000, 200,000, you get a bunch of different people putting small small investment money in and you don't really then necessarily have, you know, one or two key VCs that that can really kind of help guide you through the process. Whereas other cases sometimes you'll actually have a, you know, a fund like an uncorked um formerly softdeck VC or or some of these really really pretty well established um uh, seed VCs, micro VCs, where they'll actually lead a lot of these rounds, and then and then you'll get much better guidance. I think, you know, talking to people to help you navigate the process for your specific company is super helpful. And even, you know, at the early stages, it is useful to be meeting with VCs on a pretty, you know, at a pretty regular basis just to get feedback to develop the relationship. Because the hardest, I mean, I agree, the hardest rounds to get done is you know, probably actually getting, getting, really getting the Series A done, given how many different seed investments are out there. Yeah. So, um, last question, in the last 18 months or 12 months, what are the key trends that you're seeing in the deal flow that you are observing? Um, I guess... You know, it it certainly seems like there's a lot of really good opportunities out there. Um, you know, there, um, you know, the last certainly the last couple of years, there's been a lot in AI and artificial intelligence. It feels like that is cooling off a little bit. Um, you know, there's a lot going on within the cryptocurrency market now and blockchain, and I think people are generally assuming that is going to be a pretty attractive area to be investing in. Um, and I think, um, you know, I don't know, I guess for me it's a little bit tough because there's the what's going on in the market and then our, our, our fund, I think, has is, is developed a stronger, stronger reputation. So actually our, our deal flow has been quite strong. Um, and I think, you know, I also think there, there's just a lot more opportunities out there, even the way that you were describing, like a, a more 75 to $100 million market. You know, there are markets of like $200 million to $500 million that are markets in the software world which would have been hard to which would have been hard to address a bunch of years ago but now you know a couple developers you know a mobile app um you know AWS and boom you know you can get something to address these these small markets so there's 
there just are there are more and more people starting companies and more and more companies out there and that and that leads us to more and more good opportunities all right well great talking to you ira uh, thank you for sharing your perspective your your you know framework of uh, investment thesis and so forth listeners thank you for listening um please make sure you go check out the 1M by 1M self-assessment on our website. Take those questions, answer them in the context of your venture, see where you have methodology gaps that you need to fill, and then you can use the 1M 1M resources to fill those methodology gaps and make progress. You can come talk to me at one of the working sessions. These are the free public roundtables where entrepreneurs around the world are welcome to come and work with me on their strategy. See you soon, and uh, we will be back with another edition of the 1M by 1M podcast.